Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, today and next week, I'm going to do something that I rarely do, and that is to depart from the scriptures for the day and talk in this homily about something else. And the something else, you might have guessed, is the Da Vinci Code. Now again, I'm reluctant to do it. The homily is really for the explication of the scriptures, but there's something about this phenomenon, and that's of course what it is, it's a phenomenon, that I think is calling for the response of the church. Some people say, of course, we should just ignore it. Ignore this book, ignore the movie. The church looks defensive, inappropriately so, when it responds. Well, I agree that if an attack on the church is trivial, it's being mouthed by a few people off on the margins, or if, let's say, in the rarefied halls of academe, a few people are debating issues, the church is probably best advised to avoid it or ignore it. But let's face it, the Da Vinci Code in hardcover has sold 50 million copies. That's staggering, almost unprecedented. And now the paperback is out. That'll sell how many millions more? And it's now, beginning this weekend, a major motion picture. Countless millions more will see it in movie form. And this book and movie contain a frontal assault on Christianity. This is not a trivial attack, not something looking at the margins. This is a frontal attack, and tens of millions of people, maybe half this country, will be exposed to it. I think that warrants a response on the part of the church. You know, just yesterday I read a remark by Ron Howard, who's the director of the movie, And someone that I've admired for years, both as an actor and as a director, I've liked a lot of the movies he's made. But what he said was really silly, I thought. He said that those who are raising their voices in protest to his movie are fascists. That's his word. Well, the church's most sacred teachings, its central doctrines, are being trashed in a wildly popular book and movie. And the church raises its arms in self-defense And that's fascism? I mean, come on. Who's being fascist? So, what can we say in defense? I'll talk about four areas today and next week. First of all, the divinity of Christ. Secondly, the Gnostic Gospels. Thirdly, Mary Magdalene and the Sacred Feminine. And fourthly, the Church and anti-Catholicism. First, the divinity of Christ. As probably most of the world knows, the central claim of the Da Vinci Code is that Jesus wasn't divine. He was a first century Palestinian prophet who married Mary Magdalene. 
Mary Magdalene gave birth to his child, a girl, by the way, named Sarah. After the crucifixion of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and her daughter fled. They arrived in the south of France, and Sarah gave rise to a bloodline that eventually produced many of the kings of France and some of the most prominent families in Europe. The church, from the beginning, has been trying to suppress this story, trying to wipe out, even, the bloodline of Jesus. But it's being defended by a noble group, the Priory of Zion. And there's the central conflict in the Da Vinci Code. Okay. Now, I'll get back to the silliness about Mary Magdalene a bit later. But let me first say this. What bothers Catholics most, indeed, what bothers Christians most about the Da Vinci Code, is this explicit denial of the divinity of Jesus. One of Dan Brown's heroes claims that the early church never thought of Jesus as divine, but only later, in the 4th century, did Constantine and his minions declare him so for political reasons. Well, listen, Christians. In point of fact, the divinity of Jesus, the central claim of Christianity, can be found implicitly or explicitly defended on practically every page of the New Testament. A fourth century accretion, hardly. Rather, it is central to the claim of the New Testament. Now, just to give some examples, we're familiar with all this, but in John's Gospel, we have these very explicit claims. Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He who sees me sees the Father. And then, of course, John the Evangelist himself says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's that Word, fully divine, that becomes flesh in Jesus. That's not the fourth century. That's the Gospel of John. Now, more to it, this same truth, though expressed in a different symbolic language, can be found in the other three Gospels as well. When Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven, to the paralyzed man, and those around him say, Well, who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Well, yes, that's the whole point. Jesus there is speaking and acting in the very person of God. When he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, that's coherent only if the speaker is himself the eternal word of God. When he says in Matthew's gospel, you've heard it said, but I say, that's of course the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and the you've heard it said refers to the Torah, to the word of God. You've heard it said there in the highest authority within Judaism. But I say, that makes sense only if the speaker is himself the one who is the author of the Torah. How about, unless you love me more than your mother and father, more than your very life, you're not worthy of me. I've said before, you can imagine a religious leader saying something like, unless you love God more than your mother and father, unless you love my teaching, perhaps. But unless you love me 
personally, more than your mother and father, more than your very life, the only one that could say that coherently is the one who is himself the highest good. My point here is, in the Gospel of John and in the other evangelists, you find clearly defended the divinity of Jesus. More to it. Go back even before the Gospels, the earliest of which was written around the year 70. Go back before the Gospels into the epistles of Paul, written somewhere in the 50s probably of the first century. You find this, grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same line, at the same level of importance, Paul says, greetings from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the use of that word, Lord, kurios in Paul's Greek, is very telling. For a Jew of Jesus' time, kurios, Lord, Adonai, was a word used exclusively of God. It was God's unique title. Therefore, when Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord, which he says over and over again, that's a statement of the divinity of Jesus. We know, too, from Paul's letter to the Philippians, he cites a hymn which he himself probably had inherited from an earlier time. And the hymn says this, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself and became a slave. Well, the form of God. Here, probably in the 40s of the first century, very early on, a Christian hymn is declaring the divinity of Jesus. And that hymn concludes this way. Therefore, we hold him above every other name, and we declare to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord. Friends, I'm emphasizing this, even at the risk of belaboring it, to make this point that the divinity of Jesus is clearly affirmed up and down the New Testament, from the earliest texts to the latest texts. What did happen in the fourth century? Well, it's true that Constantine, the emperor, did call a council. It met at Nicaea, just outside his capital city of Constantinople, in the year 325. It was called to respond to the Arian heresy. Arius had said that Jesus is not truly divine, but rather he's the highest creature. This caused an uproar in the church. Why? Because all these biblical people said, no, that's not right. That's not the biblical faith. They debated, they fought, and at the Council of Nicaea, it's true, they voted. And the majority conclusion was, Arius is wrong. The biblical witness is that Jesus is truly divine. And Nicaea therefore gave us this great creed that we all recite and repeat every Sunday. Who is Jesus? Not just a prophet. Not just a teacher, not just a guru, not just one human being among many, but rather Jesus is God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Those familiar terms, we repeat them every week. They come from the Council of Nicaea that was indeed called by Constantine. 
The point of all that is to say he is truly divine. Invented by Constantine? Come on. Come on. Rather reaffirmed and given this careful expression by the Council of Nicaea. But what's being defended here is the ancient teaching of the church. Now, when I turn to this topic next week, I'll look at these three other areas. But let me just conclude with this as we look at this very central teaching. We Christians cannot simply lie down when someone denies the divinity of Jesus. I mean, you can deny little things here and there, I suppose, in the, in the, uh, about the practice of the church or something. But when you are denying the divinity of Jesus, you're denying the central claim of Christianity. Will we survive the denial of this? No, we won't. They recognized in the 4th century, when Arius denied the divinity of Jesus, they recognized this is the Gettysburg. This is the decisive battle. If we lose this battle, we do lose the central claim of the faith. And that's why it was defended so assiduously. So now, we don't have Arius, but we have a very popular book and probably going to be a very popular movie, at the center of which is the claim that Jesus Christ is not divine. Christians can't just sit this one out. Christians can't just lie back and take it. Rather, we have to stand up, as the gospel writers did, as Paul did, and as they've done throughout the centuries, and say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And upon that claim hinges the whole life of the church. Upon that claim hinges our salvation. Therefore, we must fight a little bit. We must stand up and boldly, calmly, and with joy defend this truth. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.